Welcome to the Real Life Show, Living with a Chronic Illness. We are your hosts, Cassie and Chelsea. I'm Cassie, a single mom living with a chronic illness who is extremely passionate about living a full and happy life. And I'm Chelsea. I have a passion for helping people to put themselves first and to be the best version of themselves each and every day. We came together to create the Spoonie Hub, an uplifting community that offers resources, guidance, support, and offers you the space to be yourself, be heard, and feel understood. We hope that by providing tips and tricks from experts, we help people with chronic conditions to thrive and live the lives they've dreamed of. This show is not only for those who live with a chronic illness or disability, but their friends, family, spouses, and just anyone else existing on the earth. Our goal is to normalize having a chronic condition by sharing real stories with real people and to show the world how relatable those everyday struggles can be. There's a little something in here for everyone. And a special shout out to our community at the Spoonie Hub. Thanks to your contributions, we are able to provide flexible work opportunities for Spoonies, donate to our nonprofit to help provide wellness treatments for those who need it, and be able to transcribe our podcast to make it more accessible for all. To learn more, visit our show notes. Enjoy the show. Hello there, little sweetie cutie listening to this wonderful episode. I was just wondering if you've gotten your vital field energy cell yet because mine is stuck to the bottom of my foot and it has been for about a week. I sleep with it. I take it off for the shower and then I put it back on and tape it to my foot and I am fighting the inflammation in my body even while I'm sleeping. How friggin' miraculous is that? So if you also want to do that, you can go to vitalfield.com and use the code SpooniesUnite to get 15% off. What a lucky duck. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's episode. We are thrilled that we have got Eva Minkoff as our guest today. Eva is a fellow chronic illness podcaster, advocate, and warrior diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, mast cell activation syndrome, and fibromyalgia. Eva's 10 years of career experience in healthcare and lifetime of chronic patient experience motivated her to pursue health system reform through championing effective patient practitioner relationships. Eva is the co-founder of Invisible Not Broken, a podcast network for chronic illness, disability, and other health topics. She is also the host of Human Care, a podcast and brand that supports her mission to improve global health through self-reflection and human connection. We love talking to Eva. We, she's just one of the people we've connected with that we could talk to all day long. And we have so much fun chatting with her. She shares her story about kind of how she was diagnosed when she was younger, how she's gotten to different doctors. And she's just got some really good tips for just dealing with doctors. And she's got some perspective shifts as well that she's been able to gain through her experience of looking at healthcare as human care and the relationships between fellow humans so this is one that I highly recommend you listen to all the way. And if you are interested in listening to more of this kind of concept of relationships within healthcare and between humans, make sure you go check out her podcast, Human Care. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of The Real Life Show, Living with a Chronic Illness. Today, we have Eva with us today. Hi, Eva. Hello. Yay. So Eva had us on her podcast, Human Care, not too long ago. And so we're so excited to be able to have her on our podcast today. Yay! <laughs> Podcast buddies. Yay! Podcasts are the best. 
go listen to Eva's. It's a good one. So Eva, will you tell our listeners who you are, a little bit about yourself and how you've gotten to where you are today? Sure. Uh, So a little about me on the surface is that, uh, yes, I'm the host of the Human Care Podcast, uh, part of the Invisible Not Broken Podcast Network, where we have like a lot of other chronic illness podcasts. Uh, I have been working in healthcare for like, I guess, 12 years now uh, from an academic perspective and also just like, you know, different jobs and whatnot. But that's the boring stuff. The uh, other place where I'm very experienced in healthcare is as a patient, of course. And I've been a patient for 20, yeah, 20 years. Uh, 20 years I have been seeing doctors and, um, you know, other than just checkups, like a quote unquote normal human. Uh, And it took, I'd say 10 years to be diagnosed with anything. And then only recently, as in this summer, August, 2020, was I really diagnosed properly. So you could say I've gone undiagnosed for 20 years. Uh, And my diagnoses at this point in time are uh, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, uh, hypermobile, uh, mast cell activation syndrome, fibromyalgia, and may have POTS. I don't, I don't really think I do, but Hey, I haven't been tested for anything. So we'll see. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So, uh, when I was like 10, I started having pretty excruciating pain in my right shoulder. It like I described it and still do to this day as someone sawing off my shoulder. It was like, yeah, not, not good. Maybe I'm being a little bit dramatic, a little bit here, but it was not good. Um, it's, it's still very painful. And I went to so many different types of doctors. My dad dragged me around all of over the Upper East side of Manhattan. So like, you know, the top docs, right. Uh, in America and nobody could figure out what was wrong. And I went into my teens and it was just a continuation of people not knowing what was wrong with me. And it went from being my shoulder to different joints, to having vertigo, to just being physically sensitive everywhere. I was just one big nonsensical pain mess. And then also, you know, stomach aches and everything was other than I'd say the uh, shoulder feeling like it was being sawed off. Everything was like on the milder side from what I hear about other people with their chronic illnesses in their teens. So I still lived a pretty normal life, which is why maybe I was misdiagnosed I'm, I'm almost positive. My parents didn't really believe me at times. Mm-hmm. My dad, I'm still not sure he believes me actually. Uh, and yeah, just got dismissed. And during all of this happening, I was also training to be a professional ballet dancer, which if anyone has seen black Swan <laughs> psychosis aside, that is not an exaggeration. <laughs> Right. Like, that is the life. Like it is, it is the be all end all. Like you getting the part of Snow Queen is more than just a cry in the bathroom. Snow Queen, what was she? Swan Queen. Uh, and the girls are terrible and uh, they force you to do things with your body and your mind that are just so not natural. Uh, I'm convinced there's got to be a big relationship between my pain uh, and what I went through. Well, you know, all that being said, I was a ballet dancer, teenage girl who had all this vague pain. So naturally I wasn't taken very seriously. Uh, Some, even the nicest doctors still were like, not only can I not diagnose you, but I don't really take what you're saying as 
truth, or maybe you're just hyperbolizing. Uh, there was this one doctor, I think he was a pediatric rheumatologist at Cornell. And I told him I was dancing like five, six days a week, multiple hours a day. And maybe it's related to my pain. And he said, well, just stop dancing then. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and, and I get as a doctor why he said, I, I mean, I get it from his perspective and not really seeing me as a whole person that being the problem. But my response was, why don't you stop being a doctor? Yeah. That's <laughs> my identity as a, I mean, it was, yeah, it was your life at that point. Yeah. So suffice it to say, I did not accept that <laughs> as, oh. as a response. <laughs> Uh, he seemed like a, he was a perfectly nice man, just did not know how to see through my eyes in the slightest. So I haven't forgotten about that. Um, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia when I was 20, so like 10 years ago. And that was the first doctor to really ever ask me about my life outside of my medical history. And when I asked, oh, so I brought up the dance thing to him, but it was because he probed me to, to talk about my life. Like mm -hmm. he said, is there any kind of, oh, did you, did you experience any trauma growing up? And naturally for someone who did not know about fibromyalgia, who didn't know anything really about trauma uh, in that capacity, I was like, no, I had a great childhood. Like I'm a happy girl, no trauma here. And, but he kept pressing me. It's like, I think I might know it's wrong. And there's a lot of trauma related to this condition. So maybe I'll put it another way. Have you had any chronic physical or emotional stress? Light bulb. Yeah. <laughs> 15 years of ballet might, might've done it. <laughs> That's cool uh, that he um, kind of reworded it in that way, because mm -hmm. sometimes trauma is like a scary word and people don't want to say, oh yes, I've had that or they might be avoiding it within themselves for whatever reason. So that's cool that he reworded it. And then mm -hmm. you were able to be like, uh, yeah, being a professional or, you know, advanced dancer all those years is for sure chronic stress. Yeah. Oh yeah. I went to like, <laughs> I always feel a little odd talking about this because it's like, what if one of them are listening or something? But uh, yeah, I mean, we call the, our directors the ballet Nazis. And um, I feel like that's not uncommon of a way not. to kind of feel about your dance instructors. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm sure all you like, I know people that teach dance, you are lovely, lovely humans, but it's an environment that ends up being kind of intense sometimes. Yeah. And at the same time, I don't really want to bash the world of ballet. I could easily do so, but I also love it. It's a love hate relationship. It's kind of like, I don't know, your first love in high school sort of, thing. it's just, it's so intense how I feel about it. If I watch it on TV, anyone who's experienced something remotely like me, I cry. Mm -hmm. Going to the Nutcracker is still a very, very confusing experience for me <laughs> to this day. Uh, both horrified and loving every moment of it. Uh, but yeah, so I don't know for sure where ballet participated in a positive and negative way because the woman who, the doctor who diagnosed me with Ehlers-Danlos this summer, she actually said ballet is the reason why I am not popping out limbs left and right. Mm -hmm. And that the it control would have taught your joints how to, or you would have developed the muscles to hold your joints in place. 
Exactly. Yeah. And after I stopped dancing the way I was, uh, I became a personal trainer because I'm naturally pretty muscular and I wanted to do something. And I learned a lot of Pilates. I know you guys teach Pilates. I love Pilates. Mm -hmm. Uh, And because I continued to make sure my body was fit and working for me in some capacity, it has apparently led to me not having EDS as badly as a lot of people do at my age. So, you know, there's lots that happened in between then and now, but uh, I, yeah, I was, I guess, diagnosed with hypermobility syndrome before EDS. And that diagnosis was interesting because I was in Israel at the time. And I was telling this guy, I was like, I've, I've had this pain for 12 years. I've had, I don't even know many x-rays and MRIs and tests and no one can find anything. And he takes one look at, and I think it was just an x-ray and he goes, I know why no one can find anything because that's the problem. There's too much space. There's significantly more space between all of your joints than he's, he told me in two seconds. He's like, you have hypermobility syndrome and you're going to have it for the rest of your life. I think it's, it's fascinating that like, I think we all try to look at like the problem, like what's wrong without noticing like what's just a little bit different because for you it wasn't that there was like a structural problem or probably like not a ton of inflammation that was showing up on an x-ray but there was just it was a little different there was more space that's so interesting that it can be something as simple as that yeah even though it's not simple because you had pain for 12 years (laughs) yeah still had pain for 12 years or more years but uh I mean, I'm sure everyone can attest this to some extent, like getting a diagnosis is a relief on its own when it's such a mystery for so long. And even now though, I have more concrete diagnoses. I, there's, there are also a lot of vague symptoms that go with these. I'm still navigating it, will be navigating it for the rest of my life. Uh, one way I'm navigating it right now is I'm on a bouncy ball instead of a chair because my joints can't handle for like being in one position for more than five minutes. So I have to like bounce around and have a good time on this ball. You're right. Like when you get a diagnosis, there's a moment of like relief and validation of like, okay, there's a reason why I feel this way, you know? And then you feel thankful for that in a sense. But what, I've noticed at least within myself and then especially the more that we're talking to other people, especially if you have multiple diagnoses, then it's like, okay, so is this symptom because of that illness? Is this symptom because of this illness? And then is this symptom completely unrelated? Is this a side effect of one of the medications for one of the, you know, illnesses? And then it's kind of like, well, I feel this way. And should I be feeling this way? And then there's this whole like different aspects too. It's like you go through almost like the mysterious illness and undiag- not being having a diagnosis and trying to get heard and trying to get believed and trying to get a label. Then you get it. You have a moment of relief and validation. And then you have a moment of grief. Like, what the fuck? I just got given like some incurable lifelong diagnosis. What does that mean? What about the life I had? Then you go through another like unknown uncertainty of like, why do I feel this way? What symptom is this? What symptom is that? Then trying to get medications to treat it. Then those have side effects. I mean, it's just like a lot. It's, it's such a journey of 
ups and downs. I experienced all of those in a five hour car ride when I was diagnosed with EDS this summer. Uh, I went, so I live in Rochester, New York, like close to Canada. And I went all the way down to Maryland, like close to DC to see this doctor. And I, now I made like a little trip out of it, but yes. still, <laughs> uh, I saw her as my last thing for that trip. And when she told me I had EDS, I was kind of happy. Like I looked probably happier than most people do in her office. I was like, oh no. But now I'm thinking, oh, I was suspecting this for so long. I'm glad that she confirmed it. Uh, and then, yeah, I felt like kind of giddy. Like, it was weird. And then I got in the car And I was like, oh, should I call someone? Who should I tell? And I realized I don't really want to tell anybody right now. I think I need to sit with this. Mm -hmm. And then I sat with it and thought about what it meant for the rest of my life, what could possibly happen, um, including having children. uh, Like I hope that we can conceive in like a year or two from now. And people with EDS have a really hard time conceiving and keeping at least full-term children. And Mm -hmm. So because it's a connective tissue disorder uh, and I've already actually had two miscarriages unplanned, like I'm not going to get into that. I didn't want kids at the time, but I miscarried and it was, it was just kind of weird. Uh, So yeah, so I'm thinking about all of that. I don't call my husband. um, I don't call my parents. I don't call anyone. And I go through this five, six hour drive and I'm like crying and then listening to pump up music. And it's, um, definitely having some major emotional moments. In fact, I didn't tell anybody until I got home. Uh, Oh, actually I forgot. I stopped off at my parents um, in Westchester, New York on the way. And I was silent. I was dead silent. I was, I was just supposed to like pick up something at their house, maybe have like a quick bite and leave. And they're all talking and, you know, like nothing's going on. And then finally one of them says, maybe my dad was like, Hey, so how was your appointment? And I just, I don't know if I broke down immediately. I think I tried to just be cool. And then I started crying in the kitchen. (laughs) Uh, And there, and I wouldn't talk even after crying for a while. It was so bizarre. I just like lost it for a minute and I wasn't even sure what I lost it about. I think it was all the unknowns of what it meant. Uh, I bet a lot of people can relate to that. And I feel like it's definitely an emotional roller coaster. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I had, I know it's not the same thing, but I had a similar experience when I found out I had to have a second surgery. I was in the office and like, was my colorectal surgeon, which I really do love her, honestly. So if anyone in the area needs one, I recommend mine. But um, it's kind of funny because they come in and talk to you like what's going on you know, you tell your symptoms, then they're like, and already you've been waiting in there for like 10 minutes for them to come in. Right. Then they come in, they're like, what's going on? You tell them for like two minutes. Then they're like, okay, get dressed or get undressed, lay on the table on your side, you know, with your butt to the back and the edge. We'll be back. Then you kind of lay there for a little longer than what's comfortable. Um, During these moments, I've often sobbed or just taken like very deep breaths to calm myself. Then they come in and they go to your butt. There's a big light. They take a look, they poke around. Then they're like, okay, get dressed. We'll be back. Then they leave again. And then they come back in like a little too long later. 
and they come back in and then they tell you like whatever your diagnosis is or not diagnosis in this case it was like yeah we think you might have a second fistula and we'd like to operate again and I was like that's fucking not what I was hoping you were gonna say you know and then we talk about it and I'm like okay go ahead bring the scheduling person in and then they leave and then a little too long later some girl comes in to like schedule you and ask about availability then she like leaves to check and then comes back so there's all these moments that you're like just sitting there like trying to process the moments that are happening and in those moments I'd like texted a few people I think I texted Chelsea and like my mother-in-law was like oh my god I have to get a second surgery and I was kind of panicking and then after I scheduled it and like left the room I went through the same thing where I was like I don't want to talk to anybody I don't even know how to like hold it together right now this is devastating it was a matter of like four days that I was having the surgery I went in the bathroom I like bald in the stall then I like walked outside and got in my car and then I wanted to call someone to talk about it then I was like nope I don't want to talk to anybody about it and I just drove for a while and like listened to music and kind of went through all the emotions like you did and then I sobbed a bit and then I was like I don't even know how to feel about this I don't know what to say I don't know what to feel I'm glad that there's a reason why I still feel like shit but now this sucks it's it it is weird and so I'm sure a lot of people listening can relate to like you get this diagnosis and the amount of things you have to process and I'm sure that a lot of people go through it on their own I've been in a lot of my appointments on my own even when I was married and now with COVID in the last year and it being limited to have people I think people are probably on their own more um in the last year which I feel like in some ways can make it harder when you don't have someone there supporting you and advocating and maybe asking the right questions and helping you process. But also I have found it in some ways healing because I've really gotten to just be in the space that I need to be in the emotions and the feelings. I don't know. It's just difficult. And it's one of those, uh, I think connections and bonds that whenever you meet a Spoonie that you kind of both get it. If you talk about when you've been searching for a diagnosis, then you've got one, you kind of right away are like, kind of know that feeling, you know, it's like a commodity. Yeah. Thing. I'm sure there are lots of, lots of memes that I've seen about <laughs> exactly that. Mm-hmm. It's like when you get a, when you finally get a diagnosis and probably like the Joker faces. Come on. Yeah. And what I just realized in, in telling that story about the drive is something uh, is that it, it's, it was very uncharacteristic of me. I'm actually someone who loves to talk about what's going on in my head. In fact, it's usually how I process it's either I, I have to get it out of my brain. So it's either I write it or I talk to someone about it and I was driving, so I'm not writing. Uh, and it was maybe the first time in my life or definitely one of the few where I was like, no, I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not ready to talk about this yet, uh, especially to the people who care about me most. Uh, so that was definitely a new feeling. And I did want to put out there possibly a tip in case this helps anyone else out. I recorded that entire uh, interaction with that doctor. I let them know. and I, But I was like, I want to record all of this because I, I was paying a lot of money for that doctor. <laughs> it was out of pocket. Yeah. It was obviously a big... It was, yeah, it was an expensive, worthy appointment. I also, sorry, side note, 
to that as well. Uh, it was like an $800 appointment. I, I spent like two and a half hours there. And when I asked my husband, like, are you okay with me doing this appointment? Cause it's expensive and I have to drive there, whatever. And he said, if you find out that you don't have EDS, is it worth it? Like if yeah. you find out nothing new, really, otherwise, is it worth it? And I said, yes. And he said, then you, you should do it. Yeah, that's a good, good question to ask. Yeah, so sometimes I, cause I really, I got a lot to say on the subject of cash-based medicine. A lot of it, most, if not mostly positive, but I know that it's really hard for people to wrap their heads around. But when it comes to your health and finding the right person and the right information, that, that stuff's like priceless. And it might mean that you need to put more money aside, hopefully not get a second job or something like that, but it's, it's just so worth it. It's the only body you have. Yeah. Yeah. So worth it. And believe me, we are, um, <laughs> we're not in a situation for, you know, frivolous spending <laughs> put it that way. Um, and okay. So, right. So I asked to record and they're, I don't think they're ever going to tell you no. I don't think that's a thing where doctors would tell you no. I mean, I would hope not. Like, I know when I was in college and grad school, professors were like, you cannot record this, my lectures, but it, that's very different than asking like someone to record a lecture versus someone to record. Like, I just want this, I'm paying for this hour and I want to be able to access what was said in this hour again. Yeah. It's Especially not, if it's one-on-one. I think one you on have one. to ask permission. I think it's like, yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. To be recorded as a human. I, yeah. Actually, I do think in the state of New York, you don't or something like that. But regardless, one should ask if they're going to be recorded. Uh, if, Agreed. If you're going to record someone. That's a really good trick. But it was, it was really good. And it was specifically good when uh, getting a big diagnosis and when emotions are running high so that you can revisit it. But also what I did on the drive, the rest of the drive home with my husband was we listened to it together. And um, that was validating for a number of reasons. I mean, one, he actually heard what was going on uh, and he could hear my voice. He like, he could in a way be in the room with me. Yeah. I also am very lucky in that for many reasons, um, but I'm married to a, a, a physician. He happens to be a doctor. And so uh, I was, he could give me his opinion as a doctor and her evaluation and how professional he thought she was. And he thought she was fabulous, but I got to say, if he didn't, that might've screwed with me <laughs> at the same yeah. time. So I'm really glad that it was, but I think if he didn't think she gave me a good exam or something like that, it, that actually would have been difficult to process. Um, anyway, the having it recorded, I think there's just a lot of benefits to that. If only knowing that you have it. And if you ever want to revisit it in the future, uh, hopefully you don't need it for proof. Cause that would be really shitty. <laughs> but I think that's a good point. And it's, I'm glad you brought up cash-based medicine, actually. Um, it's a topic that we haven't talked about on here that I think that you have a good understanding of. And I actually on tomorrow from the day that we're recording this, I have a doctor's appointment with my cash-based medicine office, whatever we're going to call it. Um, and I picked them because they're someone in town who are good at like looking at health holistically. And I right now I'm healthy to my knowledge, there's a few things I have some questions on, um, that I'm interested to see what I'm, what answers I'm going to get. Like I've never had blood work done before. <laughs> and so I'm curious what my blood work is going to be. Um, 
but I, I think it's a good point of like taking your health into your own hands and looking at what are some possibilities that I can do to actually get the care that I need on top of recording the conversation if you can. So that not only are you getting the best care that you possibly can, but then you also have that record of it for when you need it later. Yeah. Can can one of you guys say for our listeners, what cash-based medicine means? Yeah. So my understanding of it is generally, you know, you go to your doctor and your insurance covers it, right? In some capacity. And it's in whatever capacity that your insurance covers, (laughs) maybe you have great insurance, maybe you have crappy insurance. Well, And a lot of people get health insurance either through the government or through their employer. I am self-employed. I do not have employer given insurance and I don't qualify for any government. I mean, I think I can through the affordable care act apply for that healthcare, but um, I'm basically I'm on my own. I have to figure it out myself. And so for me, I'm having to pay for my entire insurance premium out of my pocket anyways. So I decided that instead of paying for higher premium, or I don't know if it's the right word, but higher monthly payments for insurance that would cover more things. I have a much more lower cost insurance, but I pay out of pocket to go to a doctor's office that does not deal with insurance. So like I, even if I have insurance, they're not going to take it. It is cash only. And when I say cash, it's like, you can still use a credit card, <laughs> um, yeah, right. but like you, it is on you. There's no one else that's going to be paying, helping me pay for these appointments and funny story. It's the ends up being like the same amount because yeah, it really does. <laughs> it, ends up be, it ends up being pretty close. Um, so last year I had just gotten kicked off of my dad's insurance and I was on my ownsies. Um, and so then I went to, I had to go get my well woman's exam. And so I went to the same gynecologist that I'd been to before and I didn't have insurance. It was $280 out of pocket for someone to talk to me for 10 minutes. Typical visit. I mean, did the little, did the exam, all that stuff, 10 minutes, $280. (laughs) The appointment that I have tomorrow for a new patient appointment at this doctor's office is $275. So the same price. I'll get closer to an hour with the person. Yep. So to me, I would much rather, I'm like, I'm going to have to spend that money anyways. Yes. If I had had a different insurance company, I probably wouldn't have had to pay the full amount for that gynecologist visit. I would have had to pay like the 25 or $40 copay, whatever that would, would be. But still I get a much, much higher level of care for in the end, kind of the same amount. Um, yeah. And, and like, and so like the one, the one that I'm going to, it has a system where you can pay a monthly membership fee. So like, kind of like insurance where you're like, Hey, every month I'm going to give you this, but then like you have discounts on your labs. And then you have like, if it's, you have so many appointments that you can go to every single year that you're not paying anything additional for. I'm choosing just to pay for it out of pocket because I'm like, I'm, I'm right now I'm a very healthy person, <laughs> knock on wood. <laughs> um, and so I generally, like, I have to go to the doctor maybe once or twice a year And so that to me, I'm like, yeah, I'll pay out of pocket for those visits. It's okay. I can, I can set that money aside and do a savings account to make sure it's there. So basically like a a cash based medical, medical practitioner is just anyone that's not going to work through insurance and they'll take direct payment from you, which means that the insurance company is not taking a cut. And so all the money that you pay actually goes to your doctor, which is why it's not a higher price because insurance, they don't have to make sure that they can also pay the insurance companies. 
hey everyone, I know you're all cozy listening to our episode, but I wanted to take a moment to let you know how you can become even more cozy with some Spoonie merch. All right, so we got a merch store. Hopefully you've looked at it. If you haven't, that's okay. That's why I'm telling you about it now. We got some cool stuff on there. There's sweatshirts. There's long sleeve shirts. There's t-shirts. There's tank tops. There's stuff that just says the real life show living with a chronic illness. So you can rep our podcast. But there's also stuff on there to just celebrate the Spoonie life you are living. We've got comfy stuff with, this is my all out of spoons outfit. So when you're not feeling your best, you can get all comfy cozy with a shirt that tells the world that you ain't feeling great to leave you alone if that's your thing. We've also got stuff to help inspire you. I have a long sleeve shirt from our merch store that says dream, be happy, seek fulfillment, live your best life. And every time I put on that long sleeve shirt, I just feel so inspired and ready to take on the world. And it just reminds me that there's great stuff happening. So if you are interested in getting some Spoonie merch of your own, you can either head over to our website, therealspooniesunite.com, or the easiest thing is honestly just to swipe up or swipe down or whatever direction you need to get to the show notes because the link will be there. Now back to the show. At least that's my understanding of it. Eva, if you have anything to add. (laughs) No, that's, I think, a really good example. I guess I'll add a few little things. So one, yes, cutting out the insurance company, there's many, many perks to it. One uh, alone being that... I'm going to hate on insurance companies a little bit, but uh, while they can obviously make healthcare more affordable for a lot of people, uh, there's no doubt about that. Them as companies, as entities are pretty much just anti-patient minded, no matter how you look at it. Um, People talk about insurance companies and pharma companies being evil. Pharma companies at the very least are producing something that helps people and can like save your life, change your life. Mm -hmm. Insurance is literally just there to bet against you, unfortunately. Um, And they make it sometimes harder to get the care that you need because like, for example, I've had clients who have come to me with like shoulder injuries. And what I think that they need is like an MRI because they're telling what they're telling me. I'm like, an x-ray is not going to show you anything you need an MRI, but based off of the codes that insurance companies have to follow and therefore medical practitioners have to follow, you have to have like the x-ray first, then you have to have this first, then you have to have this. Yeah. And it's so many steps that really most of the time probably are unnecessary and you can just jump to the final one, but insurance won't cover it unless you go through every single one of these steps. Oh yeah. There's these memes that are like these freaking memes that are like, um, you know, where it says like, you go to your doctor and say something's wrong with me and your doctor tests, ask the lab to run some tests to see what's wrong with you. And then the lab tells you, tells your doctor what's wrong. Your doctor tells you and they tell you what medicine you need. And then the, you ask the insurance company and the insurance company is like, let me ask your doctor or whatever. Have you guys seen those memes? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I know what you're talking yeah. about. It's I, a crazy runaround. Yeah. I'm not saying yeah. it right because of my brain fog today, but it's, it, it really is crazy. And there's like, I know that I've had some insurance, um, a couple of like changes and they, for certain like biologic medications, for example, you can't even try them until you've tried this whole other list of stuff. Which is um, unfortunate because that final one on the list is probably the one that's going to help you, but you have to go through all the bullshit of trying all the other ones before you get the one that actually makes a difference. 
Yeah, it is. Which is a waste of time and a waste of money. But it insurance a, companies make it you do it. It is a broken health system. I did, I, ju- I did just see today, tiny smidge of hope that uh, for, for context, t- today is we're the, recording this on January 20th, 2021. Day. <laughs> yeah. Um, no. yeah. And Kamala Harris's sister has lupus it's and lupus. has had it for 30 years. And Kamala has made like pledges for helping the disabled community and the lupus community. And I saw that and was like, Frick yeah maybe there's hope we have someone that really has like a deep understanding and I just love her (laughs) I love her too I did not know that though yeah I just saw it today wow Mm -hmm. Wow. good more good news yay yeah Uh, so there's hope that maybe our healthcare system could get a little bit better but yeah it's there's I I grew up on cash-based medicine my mom never had insurance um first of all in the UK growing up in there I obviously had no concept of like needing to pay for the doctor it was totally different there and I never really had to go we just went to like the dentist and the doctor every now and then I was a relatively healthy kid um and I moved to the U.S. when I was 12 so I wasn't really aware of like medical bills at that age you know <coughs> and then when we moved to the U.S. um yeah, my mom never had health insurance for us or for herself. And um, when I was pregnant at 18, I was broke anyway. And so I had like Medicaid, you know, and that worked because I was pregnant and that was taken care of. So again, I didn't, it wasn't super on my radar about like the medical and cost industry. And then my mom was sick and was in the hospital. And that was my first experience of how broken the system was because she was um, at one hospital was really sick, but she was a self pay and had no money. And they like sent her home because she couldn't pay. And it was four days later, um, four to six days later from her being sent home that she was rushed in an ambulance, resuscitated in the ambulance, then spent six weeks in the ICU and died. And it was like, she should have never been sent home, but that just shows kind of how broken it is. And the hospital that she went into the second time is uh, much better at helping uh, cash-based people without insurance and um, offered, you know, a lot of like discounted pay. And there, after she had passed away, there was a lot of loops that we had to jump through, a lot of paperwork and a lot of stuff to go through and deal with after that with like $250,000 of medical debt that was due. And so then I was like, oh my God, this is so broken, you know? And then it wasn't until again, a few years after that, my husband and I at the time didn't have insurance. So I never went to the doctor. I was like, you Chelsea, I'd never had blood work except for when I was like pregnant, you know? Mm -hmm. And we never went and I was like super sick, but we were like, nah, you know, I don't know. It just wasn't priority. And then he got, um, a, he got proper employment with the forest service and was able to get insurance. Then I went to the doctor and then I got diagnosed not long after that. And so it's just, uh, if we hadn't have had, if we didn't get to have that insurance that covered then a colonoscopy and MRIs and hospital stays Mm -hmm. that I had to have and my illness, I don't know what we would have done, especially because I don't know how much longer it would have been until I even went to the doctor. 
And by the time I did finally go to the doctor, I had 11 colon polyps. Five of them were precancerous. So who knows if it would have been too late to where I quite literally had colon cancer before I would have gone. And I'm 32. And so it's, it's a broken system and it needs to be fixed. And we're hoping to help with that with our nonprofit. And then our long-term goal is to change the healthcare system in America and the world, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and maybe we'll have Kamala to help us. Kamala. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I, I didn't mean to go off on that tangent, but I felt like it was relative. No. Yeah. And, and thank you for sharing that. I didn't know that about your mom. So. Yeah. It's, it's a long, well, and I think she's on my mind because we found these like photos yesterday um, that were, st- she stashed them in some cupboard in our house. And my stepdad found this like bag of photos and like her grandparents' passports from India and Whoa. stuff. And he's like, I've never seen this stuff. And I had never seen it. So, and my mom has, she passed away a decade ago. And so it was kind of nuts yesterday to like look through this stuff. And there was these photos of when she was like 20. And so I think she was obviously like, kind of like on my mind, but um, Mm. it felt relevant because I can only imagine how many people might be listening and have had medical stories like yours, Chelsea, Mm. with outrageous costs, or maybe not having had a lot of medical um, doctor visits experience, you know, not dealing with a lot of like lab work and stuff, or uh, um, maybe Eva, like you, where they they might have medical insurance that covers some stuff, but then you do decide to pay out of pocket for other stuff because it's worth it. So mm-hmm. I just um, I wanted to share out there that um, we never know what someone's journey might be mm-hmm. with the financial aspects of the medical system um, and insurance approval or lack thereof, and um, it's probably topics that should be talked about more. And I do want to say that like me choosing one, me being able to choose a, basically I have catastrophic health insurance. Like it, I have coverage for like, if me and my fiance is in an accident or it like ends up in the hospital, <laughs> like the things that like, if you don't have any insurance for, you generally have to file bankruptcy for at the end in mm-hmm. our current healthcare system. Uh, so that's what we have. And then I have a lot of privilege being able to have the health to be, to feel comfortable only getting that level of coverage. And then secondly, there's a lot of privilege for the fact that I even have the income to be able to set something aside for my health every single month. So I realize that there are people out there that that's not an option. So, but to me, it was a decision that I made very early on that my health is very, very valuable to me. And I would rather find out if there's something going on now, um, like I have a family history of some hormone stuff and there's a few things like I have hair I've talked about in other episodes but I've gotten worse and worse hormonal acne underneath my jaw and so I'm kind of at a point where I'm like so am I okay and I'm trying to make that or trying to find that out now versus until there's like a serious problem down the road again there is a certain level of privilege of being able to do that Um, but it was a decision that I've decided to prioritize over other things I guess I've been in the same boat, right? Like, it's not like we have a lot to play with. I know my husband's a physician, but he's a fellow, so he doesn't really make anything. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> Let's put that maybe, out there. Maybe one day. <laughs> maybe yeah. one day. Not now. Not yeah. now. Um, and I always feel like I need to make that clear because they're like, oh, you're made to a doctor. You must be fine. No. <laughs> yeah. When you're also, like in the beginning stages of that, yeah. life is you, very different. 
makes nothing and he has like three hundred thousand dollars in debt I oh yeah, yeah. what it costs to become a doctor oh my god oh my god ridiculous <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah, another I, issue <laughs> that's another issue and yet like look the insurance system or healthcare system slash insurance, it's so convoluted. There are obviously major benefits like being able to cover those hospital stays and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, So I could say totally positive things about its existence, but I also want to promote the the opportunity of cash-based care when it makes sense for you, Mm -hmm. especially the idea of going to someone who's right for you. And that's that's something I could talk forever about is... uh, cash-based care will give you that luxury as well as you can actually shop for the right doctor if you want to call it shopping but find the person that is right for you as a physician and also as a person because you're putting your life in that person's hands whether that just be for a checkup and make sure that they will evaluate you properly and treat you like the way you want to be treated possibly diagnose you possibly take care of you long term for your your chronic issues I mean, your, your doctor doesn't have to be your best friend, but they should be whatever it is that you need to feel comfortable and safe and looked at as a human. Uh, I, that's, it really drives me crazy that I even feel the need to talk about this, that doctors should see, see patients as human and patients should see doctors as human, by the way. Goes both well, but, ways. And that's what your <laughs> podcast is about. It's about putting the humanity back inside of healthcare and human interactions. Yeah, exactly. That, that's why I called it human care uh, because I felt like, yeah, exactly that. That's what's missing in our healthcare system a lot of the time. I'm not saying it's absent. There are absolutely doctor-patient relationships where the two interact like they're humans with just different expertise. But, a, but I'd say more often than not, that's, that's not the case. Even mm-hmm. if a doctor has great bedside manner, which I can't give you a percent on, but like a lot do. I don't know if it's most or some or whatever. A, a lot of doctors have fantastic bedside manner, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are the right doctor for you and that they are going to treat you the way they would want to be treated or, or more importantly, treat you the way you want to be treated. Yeah. Um, someone recently told me, I don't know if they made this up, but whatever, I liked it. The golden rule is treat others as you want to be treated. And then the diamond rule is treat others the way they want to be treated. I was like, oh, I, I really like that because brilliance. Because not everyone does want to be treated the same way. Like some people are, I always think of introverts versus extroverts. Like the extroverts are like, yes, please come talk to me. And the introverts are like, please leave me alone. I, I do yeah. not want to interaction. And so, yeah, that's a good point. It's, it's not about how, just how you want to be treated, but how do they want to be treated? Yeah. And a good doctor will, will, will read that in a way, but also it's, it's okay if you don't connect with a certain physician and you want to find someone who's right for you. That's a way of advocating for yourself is if you do not feel that this doctor is the right person for you, Mm -hmm. then you should search elsewhere. Now, of course, I always like to play devil's advocate. Sometimes you may not have access to other doctors, right? Mm -hmm. Like, they're just not where you are. I've been very lucky to have grown up in the New York city area, no longer there, but now I live in Rochester where there's almost like half as many doctors as New York city, a lot of medical professionals up here, uh, hence us living here. And, uh, it's still actually, I will say thanks to one of the, the few perks of COVID has been that telehealth is finally coming to the forefront and we do have access to more physicians. So it's just one little thing. Uh, but 
if you are limited in your access to care, I would say, look into possibility. Don't take it as if like, oh, nobody knows anybody. I'm not getting any referrals. Oh, I might have to drive. Like there's, there's all sorts of reasons why it would be very difficult to find someone else. But I find it extremely unlikely that it would be impossible. And if we're talking about your health here, especially if you have a chronic illness like a Spoonies, uh, you want to make sure you're seeing the right person. Yeah, I agree. I I agree 100 percent. And I'm not sure if I've talked about this or not on other episodes, but uh, just for example, too, like like you're talking about, Eva, um, in Missoula, there's only like two GIs. it's like a city of, I don't know, 60,000 people or something. And um, actually, so when I was getting my diagnosis, there was three GIs, two of them are brothers. And um, their last names are the colon ditches. Wait, what? Yeah. It's like- They were made for that. Yeah. <laughs> Dr- Say it again. Say it again. Dr. Colon ditch. <laughs> Just ditch. like it sounds. Yeah. Okay. It's like, it's like, it must be German or something because it's like K- O L E N or something D I C H or something like that, but it's colon ditch. And so there was, I don't even remember. There was like another, there was one GI and their PA. And then there was the colon ditch brothers and my insurance, for whatever reason, I went to this other GI PA and the GI that she worked for was not even in the Missoula area. It was just the PA that you would see. Now, given she did, when I was referred over, she was like, let's be aggressive and do a colonoscopy right away. Something is wrong with you. And I was like, okay, I did not think that there was something wrong with my digestive system. I thought it was going to be uh, reproductive. So I was kind of like, as a precaution, I guess. And I didn't really know much about what a colonoscopy meant, to be honest. Anyway, did the colonoscopy severe Crohn's diagnosis came back and she was pretty awful in that first appointment back um, with the results of the, of the colonoscopy. She was like, I was there with my son. Cause I was a single beer. I, I actually wasn't a single mom at the time, but I basically was, you know what I'm saying? And she was like, she was like in this room right now, between you and I, you are 10 times more likely to die from colon cancer than I am. And if you don't get on this medication right now, you're probably going to die. And diet has nothing to do with this. You, and she just over, just slamming shit at me. And I was sitting there like, uh, what? I didn't even think I had an issue with my digestive system. (laughs) And you're just telling me I'm going to die from colon cancer. (laughs) And I was like, however old I was 27 or something, it was terrifying. And I was trying to take a more natural and holistic approach. It's how I was raised. It was a lot more of my belief um, in the medical system. So I was terrified about these medications. She's telling me these are chemotherapy medications we need to put you on. And I'm like, what? It was horrifying, terrifying. Um, So about six months went by that I did not do any of the medications, any of the steroids. I kept trying with the natural approach. Um, I wasn't getting my symptoms under control and I ended up just sicker and sicker and sicker. I had been doing more research about the disease and realized that um, it was extraordinarily rare um, for someone with IBD to heal themselves all naturally. So I felt like, okay, I need to be open to the medication. But then I realized I was so afraid of trying the medication because of how she had presented it. And I felt like there was no trust with her. And um, 
so I decided that I needed to see a different GI because I was like shut down to anything she suggested. And I felt like my, she had no bedside manner. I felt like my trust in her was affecting my decision-making on my course of treatment. So I called and called and called the colon bitches office. I was like, I don't care which one of them I see. I want to see one of them. I want to see a PA. I don't give a shit who. I, I think I called every day for two months. And finally, they were like, we can get you in with a PA two months from then. And um, so when I like, Chelsea and I will need to do an episode on advocating for yourself in the healthcare system. I have been there. I have advocated. And I got in and I saw the PA and I right away intuitively felt better with him. He just presented the medications better. He talked about everything. And I, I decided to start Remicade and I started a, a heavy duty um, biologic medication. So I just share that because you really have to find someone that you feel safe with and that you trust and that you like, and that you feel like listens to you and cares about you as much as your healthcare professional can or whatever, because otherwise, yeah, it's going to skew what you're open to trying or not treatment wise. And it hundred percent did for me. Um, and then I ended up with a small bowel obstruction, like right after that. And so I, sometimes I'm like, did my natural course of treatment prevent me from having a small bowel obstruction for as long as it did? Or did me choosing that path end up with me having that instruction? You know, it's kind of an interesting way to look at it, like glass half full or half empty, but, um, it's really important for you to find someone that you trust and that you feel good with. Otherwise, otherwise you're not going to, I don't know. You just, it's not in your benefit. There's not trust. Trust, trust is key. It's key in every relationship. And that's what I like to, I think that's the easiest way to show the significance in that relationship. Compare a doctor-patient relationship to any relationship. What is absolutely key in every single relationship? Trust. Mm-hmm. Trust, also respect, and, uh, and communication. These are all things you have to have in place for any successful relationship. And that's, it's, it's true if it's a romantic one, friends, colleagues, and a doctor-patient relationship too. And it goes both ways. That doctor actually has to trust you too. That doctor has to trust that you're listening to them, that you uh, respect what they're saying and are actually going to participate in your role as a patient uh, and trust that you're not gonna judge them in a way that also skews that dynamic uh, and trust that you see them as a person, a person who does make mistakes and does actually have limitations. I was listening to this TED talk the other day. I apologize, I don't remember the name of it now, but it was something about, what was it? Um, how, oh damn, it was a statistic of like, if we got, shoot, I can't remember what Dude, statistic this is, I, is. This is but, my life right now. I totally look, understand. Let's put it this way. It's like if in this, this thing, I don't know. I, I keep going to rockets in my mind. It's like, oh, if you can rock a, <laughs> launch a rocket uh three out of ten times successfully you've done a fantastic job it's not yeah rocket. i don't know what it was but if you're a doctor 
they expect 10 out of 10. Like they will not take anything less, but you think about that knowledge in the, yeah. in the world that they have to have, and they have to be on point as humans in like every explicable way. It's, it's just kind of ridiculous. I think it was some other kind of test that is like supposed to be accurate and it only is 3% of the time. And that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> but that makes a lot of sense. So like, yeah. we're watching Scrubs right now. It's just our show to just watch for fun because we love it. And I don't think my fiance had ever watched it before. And I was like, how have you not watched Scrubs? But we've been watching it. And I just, I, I enjoy watching that show, not only because I just find the comedy funny, but I also think that it, it does a good job of in a lighthearted way, bringing to light what it can be like for people that are working in the healthcare industry. Like, yeah, you, you do have people's lives on the line and you are human too. And you're not always going to see everything and you're not always going to be able to catch something fast enough. And unfortunately, like sometimes mistakes mean that someone dies, but if you're a doctor or a nurse or a PA or just anyone working in that field, that's at least that's trying to do your best every single time. And you're putting in that effort and your patients also being willing to work with you, then maybe that's the best that we can really ask for, even though we all want a hundred percent all the time. Yeah. And I get that. Look, I'm a patient too, right? Like I, <laughs> I'm hoping that I got a 10 out of 10 doctor who's going to get it right every time with me. Oh, it was batting average. Don't know. Oh, where oh. I think it was. Oh like yeah. A, a t- 300 batting average is phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. Phenomenal. Right. Absolutely phenomenal. But if you have anything less than perfection as a doctor, I mean, they'll t- tear you apart and think you're the worst person ever and, um, or, and liable, of course. Now, I'm not saying that there's not malpractice out there. Of course there is. Uh, but we still don't see doctors from the light of a human as someone who is not perfect, who is going to make mistakes, just having a shitty day. And I'm not talking in terms of malpractice. I'm talking about like just not having a good dynamic, possibly. Mm-hmm. You don't know how many people they saw before you. You don't know yeah. what happened earlier that day to them. Um, you don't know about the limitations they have on the way they practice as in like time. I, I got a lot to say on that. They are very limited with time. It ain't about you. Um, and they're very limited with what they can say. That's another thing. So some doctors are, I'm still a little fuzzy on the regulations here, but like let's just say sometimes it's better to not give a diagnosis than give the, well, obviously the wrong diagnosis, but even give like a guess. And some people will get so upset. They're like, oh, they didn't even try. They didn't give me anything to work with. It's like, well, maybe that was the way they decided was the best thing for you to go forward because they did not want to say anything wrong that you would take and run with. Like, yeah. do you want to tell someone you might have cancer if no. like, you, <laughs> like they, they, it's only a small chance that they have cancer. Like I would be like, no, please only tell me I have cancer and take my brain to that place. If there's a really, really good chance to have it, or it's actually confirmed that I have it. Yeah. I mean, doctors, and, and I would say this before I ended up marrying one, but I definitely can tell you from behind the scenes now, what they go through is insane absolutely insane even just med school alone is fucking insane (laughs) and they they do have to go through that scrutiny I don't think I didn't go through med school with him but uh it seems like a lot of it is necessary uh the way they what they put you through uh but look I I went through residency with him he did countless 24-hour shifts 
What? Crazy. Like, I don't, also, yeah. Why are we making what? humans that are making decisions about the lives of other humans work for 24 hours? I don't understand. I just don't understand. I remember every morning when I got up at 6 a.m., like he was gone the whole day and his shift ended at like 7 a.m. I was thinking to myself, I went to bed and he'd already been working for an entire day. I got up. He's still at work. He mm-hmm. is still at work. And I was livid every single morning when that happened. And by the way, that has been taken down a notch. Like it used to be over 24 hours. Like it could be a couple days. Yeah. I've heard like 36 hours thrown before. No sense. No sense whatsoever. But as, as being married to someone who is still, as I like to say in the system, like he went through residency and then fellowship. Now he's a pediatric gastroenterologist. Hey, Cassie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, and even to this day, because he hasn't really been out on his own yet, I, I can see where he's just, he's being his own doctor, like he's got his own flair, his own bedside manner, uh, but he still has to answer to all these, um, well, the, the main attendings in the hospital, and he's, he can only do so much and say so much and be so much, and he's trying his absolute hardest to do everything he can for every individual patient. And so I'm not saying cut Dr. Slack as in it's okay if they treat you poorly and it's okay if there's malpractice or anything like that. But with any human, just look at them as a human. They have a mm-hmm. lot of shit going on too. And if you understand that, maybe you can level with them in some way yeah. and talk to them differently. And maybe, and also it just helps when you're not just so angry at someone. Because if you understand that someone's going through a hardship, isn't it easier to to sympathize or empathize with them. I think about, um, I don't know why I bring this up as an example, but think about villains in movies you've seen or TV shows or the antagonists, and then you learn their backstory, mm-hmm. like how they were tortured or tormented. And now they're like mean because they had a really bad past. Don't you end up empathizing with them in some capacity and they're no longer that evil to you? Yeah, Cobra Kai on Netflix is all about that. Cobra Kai is like the it's like the karate kid but like now but like the same actors oh right because it's um the other guy what's his yeah yeah blonde kid yeah right and he's an adult now and so they they've done a really good job in that show of they show like everybody's backstories and like histories and their perspective on like the same situation and it is quite clever because you're like huh and so my son and I keep being like, you know, oh, I hated him. And then it's like, oh, but now, you know, look at, look at his perspective on it. And it's like, they've done a good job to try to um, get people to see things that way. Yeah. I'm yeah. really glad you brought up that point, Eva. That was, I think that's good as a good reminder. And I appreciate your opinion on it. Cause when you can, you're married to a physician and you have lots of conversations like this. Like if you want to hear more about conversations between people and healthcare providers and just human care you have to check out Eva's podcast and speaking of your podcast Eva where can everyone find you if they want to not if when they want to connect with you more because you're so amazing and you're so fun to talk to well thank you sweetie right back at you uh so like I said human care is part of the invisible not broken uh podcast network so invisiblenotbroken.com you can find uh the human it's like invisiblenotbroken.com slash human care podcast uh you can find me but also if you google human care or 
human care on any of your podcast players. You can find it there. Uh, and me in particular, I'm Eva Lana Minkoff. I'm pro I think I'm the only one you can find me pretty much anywhere. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you know, I love people sending me emails, messages. Um, um, it's human care underscore podcast for Instagram. Uh, but I love, I love connecting with people from the community. So anyone who wants to reach out, listen to podcasts, what have you, happy to have you. Yay. Yay. Well, Eva, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with us. This was a really great conversation and we touched on some things that we haven't gotten to yet on the podcast, which is really awesome. We talked about yeah. healthcare in ways that we haven't always. And I really appreciate the perspective that you brought and some of the tips that you had. I hope people find them very, very helpful. My absolute pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. If you love this podcast and want to show your support, please leave a review, share the podcast with others, or join us in the Spoonie Hub. If you'd like to connect with Cassie and I, you can find us on Instagram at The Real Spoonies Unite or on our website, mywellnesshub.co, where you can find all sorts of resources and you can find the Spoonie Hub. Talk to you soon.